As Logan said, um, this last week, our time in Orlando was phenomenal. Thank you, all of you who were praying for us. We had a great time. I can assure you that we were also praying for you, and it's our, our hope and confidence that our time there, the, the word that was preached, the, the richness of that feast that we had, that as our hearts benefit from that, we come back, uh, like Logan said, excited about this place. I, I, I can say being there encouraged me, strengthened me in my conviction. There, there's no other family of churches that I'd rather be part of right now. And coming back, come back with that sense that there, there's no other church I'd rather be in than Emmaus Road Church. No other people I'd rather be sharing my life with in gospel community than all of you. So it was good to be there. It's really good to be back and to be worshiping with you this morning. Charlie Brown once mused, as he often does, why can't we just get all the people together in the world that we really like and then just stay together? I guess that wouldn't work. Someone would leave. Someone always leaves. And then we would have to say goodbye. I hate goodbyes. Goodbyes are hard, aren't they? I just think of this last week, going to Orlando. Even though I was going to Orlando where it was you know, 80, 90 degrees, sunshine, um, and I was looking forward to that conference, saying goodbye to my wife and kids was hard to do. It's hard to say goodbye and be gone from them for a week. And then after a great week worshiping, sitting under the preaching of the word, fellowshipping with other uh, pastors and their wives and Sovereign Grace churches, it's hard to say goodbye to all of those people. When a conference like that comes to an end, it's kind of a, a sinking feeling. Sad that it's over. Life is full of goodbyes. Children grow up and they move out, hopefully. Parents age and die. Friends relocate. And goodbyes signal, oftentimes, the, the close of a chapter of life. And all kinds of emotions come with that kind of closure. It can evoke sadness, loneliness, longing, uncertainty. Again, I I don't think anybody says it better than Charlie Brown. Goodbye always makes my throat hurt. 2,000 years ago, the Son of God took on full humanity, walked this earth, and in his person, in his life, in his words, in his works, he revealed the glory of the Father. He made God known in fullness, and then he left. He rose from the dead and he ascended into glory and he took his seat at the right hand of the Father. And news of his departure filled the hearts of his disciples with sorrow. And ever since then, every disciple of Jesus Christ has been living in this age of redemptive history when we live by faith without ever having seen Jesus personally or physically. You and I live in that period of redemptive history between the incarnation of Jesus and the return of Jesus, the second coming, the physical return of Jesus. And during this time of waiting and worshiping and longing, you face challenges to your faith, don't you? I mean, from time to time, if you're anything like me, you're probably prone to unbelief. You find yourself thinking that question, how do I know, how do I really know that Jesus is real? I mean, I, I trust him, I believe in him, and try to figure out what this life of faith is like. I don't see him, though. How do I know that he's real and that his promises are true? 
You may be tempted to doubt the plans and purposes of God. It's one thing to have creeds and convictions and statements of faith and profession of faith. You can say that verbally, and then you're going through something in life, and you're just thinking, I just don't see what he's doing. I don't know what God is up to in this. How do I trust when I don't see or understand how he's working? Have you ever thought to yourself, if only I could have been alive when Jesus walked the earth? That would help my faith. That would make things easier. If I could have seen him with my eyes and heard him with my ears, this whole faith thing would just be a lot easier. Maybe you've wished Jesus was physically present in the world today. Indeed, the church longs, we long like the very closing verses of the book of Revelation, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. That sorrow, that struggle, that loneliness That isolation connected to Jesus' physical absence, that's the very reality into which Jesus speaks in John 16, verses 4 through 15. And he speaks into that in order to comfort you and to encourage you and to embolden his church to keep on living by faith in this time between his first and his second coming. So would you give your attention with me to God's holy and authoritative word, John 16, I'm going to start in verse 4b. Jesus says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Let's pray. Father, we search the scriptures because we know that they point us to Jesus, and it's in Jesus alone that we find life. As we have already said in song this morning, We are looking to Jesus. We are turning our eyes to Jesus, the attention and the affection of our hearts to Jesus. And would you be faithful to keep your promises, to work through the preaching of your word, to increase our desire for Jesus, our delight in Jesus. Use your word here to strengthen and encourage our faith in Jesus as we live our lives in this world in the already and the not yet of the kingdom, waiting and longing for the return of Jesus. Help us to know exactly what you are up to in this time so that our joy and confidence in you would be full and so that we would run this race with endurance for your glory. 
and for our good. Amen. My aim this morning is to convince you that Jesus' physical absence actually means tremendous benefits, privileges, blessings for you. And I want to show you what those blessings are from this text so that you can consciously experience and enjoy those privileges in your everyday life. There are blessings that Jesus pours out on his church for you to experience now, and the way you experience them is by knowing about them, so you can take advantage of these things, and so that you can be comforted as you live your life by faith, waiting for the return of Christ. That's the thrust of this text. Look at John 16, verses 6 and 7. Jesus says, But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. That's understandable, right? Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Those are puzzling words. I mean, I can think of a lot of reasons why it would be a good thing for Jesus to have not gone away, to have stayed. Couldn't you have just stayed and set up your kingdom right here and ushered in the age to come and to your advantage that I go away. So Jesus wants his disciples, those who were with him in the upper room 2,000 years ago as he gave this farewell discourse, and those of you living today in 2019, he wants his disciples to know that his departure means advantages, benefits, blessings, privileges for you. It's better for you that Jesus departed and returned to the Father than that he remained physically present on the earth. But why? Look at the rest of verse 7. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So, get this. Jesus is not saying that his absence is better than his presence. That's not what he's saying. That, That would be certainly confusing to us. He's not saying his absence is better than his presence. He's saying that his presence by his spirit is better than his presence in the flesh, now, at this stage of redemptive history, what we call the church age. His presence by the Spirit, his presence by the, in, in the flesh. That's the contrast here. And he's saying, my presence with you by my very Spirit is exactly what you need for what's coming next. And our problem, and we've seen this before in the Gospel of John, is that we tend to think, don't we, that spiritual means imaginary? So we hear the spiritual presence of Jesus and we just think, imaginary presence of Jesus. How could that be better than the the real physical flesh and blood where I can touch him and hear him presence of Jesus? We we saw this in John chapter 3 when Jesus talks about being born of the Spirit. That's not an imaginary new birth. That's a real new birth that the Spirit causes when he gives you a new heart with new desires. We saw that in John chapter 7 when Jesus talks about rivers of living water, thirst quenching. John 4 as well with the woman at the well. When Jesus promises to quench your soul thirst with rivers poured out by his spirit. That's not imaginary heart satisfaction. That's real, and it's produced by the spirit. So Jesus' spiritual presence is not imaginary. It's his real presence on earth today by his spirit. And just think about the contrast for a second then. Just imagine a thought experiment. What would it be like if Jesus was present, if he had just remained physically present on earth after his resurrection? Well, In the flesh, he would be present in one place at a time. He took on flesh. He took on all the limitations of our humanity. He'd be present in one place at a time. So what would that mean? Like, 
would he be on a world tour that every few years he'd be coming through, you know, Sioux Falls, or maybe Sioux Falls wouldn't be big enough, so you'd have to drive down to Omaha or up to Minneapolis to see Jesus on tour, and then you'd be, you know, up in the nosebleeds, like with your binoculars, just trying to get, catch a glimpse of him. What would that actually be like? Would he have a, a blog? Would he be on Twitter and Instagram, and maybe you just follow his posts, and what would that be like, and would it be better? And Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you my presence through my spirit available to every single one of you all the time, forever, until I come back. We can only speculate what that would actually be like, but whatever it would be like, Jesus says that the way things are, his spirit poured out in his church all over the world, this is the best thing, and he knows what he's doing. Jesus gives two reasons that the presence of his spirit is good for you, better for you. His spirit will convict the world, and his spirit will glorify Jesus. Those are the two things. I want to take each of those in turn. First, the Spirit will convict the world. That's what Jesus says in verses 8 through 11. When he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. So it is to your advantage to have Jesus present through his spirit because his spirit will convict the world. And evidently, that's a benefit to us. That's a good thing for us, and we're meant to experience that and enjoy that. So what does that mean, and how is that good for us? I think the verb convict can can kind of sound like a dreadful thing at first. Have you ever seen the movie The Princess Bride? So there's this princess, Buttercup, and she has this true love, Wesley, but she agrees to marry a complicated plot if you haven't seen it, but she ends up agreeing to marry this other guy named Humperdinck, okay? And right before the wedding, she has a nightmare, and in her nightmare, she's walking through a crowd of all of these, these people, the subjects. You know, she's a princess, and she's going to marry this other prince, and out of the crowd of people, this character that they call the ancient boor comes out, She's just this haggard old woman, bedraggled, and she comes out shaking her finger at Buttercup, and she's yelling at the crowd, true love saved her, and she treated it like garbage, and that's what she is, the queen of refuse, the queen of slime, the queen of filth, shaking her finger in Buttercup's face. When the Spirit comes to convict the world, he doesn't come jeering and booing and yelling shame and filth at the world. The convicting work of the Spirit is, this is so important, the convicting work of the Spirit is the continuation of Jesus' saving ministry. The convicting work of the Spirit is an expression of God's loving purpose to save the world, not to condemn the world. John three seventeen. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Neither does the Son send the Spirit to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved? And in order for a rebellious world to be saved from the wrath of God, not only did the Son of God have to die, but the Spirit of God has to convict the world in order to apply the saving work of Jesus to the world. This is not just the Spirit coming and saying, well, there was your chance, and now shame. This is the Spirit of God coming to apply all that Jesus did to the world so that People can be saved through him. So Jesus promises the Spirit will convict the world concerning three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. First, concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Here's here's what I think that means. 
It's not that the Spirit will convict the world of their sin of unbelief, although that's certainly part of it. I think in particular what Jesus is saying here is that the Spirit will graciously bring conviction of sin to those whose unbelief would otherwise keep them from ever seeing or knowing their sin. The the very reason the Spirit of God is going to convict the world of their sin is because people don't believe in Jesus, so they don't know the full extent, the depth, the wickedness, the guilt of their sin, or the danger that they're in. Think about it. How else could someone who's dead in sin, with a hardened heart, blind and unfeeling, how could someone like that ever come to see Jesus as glorious? If you're blind, how do you see his glory? If you're dead, how do you hear his words? How do you experience that? Those who are dead in their sin don't know they're dead in sin. It's part of being dead. Therefore, something outside of you has to open your eyes, quicken your heart, raise you from the dead so that you can be saved. And that's what Jesus promises the Spirit of God will graciously do. He will bring that conviction of sin to people who don't believe Jesus' words and therefore don't know the full extent of their need. Second, the Spirit will convict the world concerning righteousness. Jesus says, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. To convict the world of righteousness sounds strange. I, I would admit that for years, every time I've read this passage in John in my Bible reading plan, I just kind of think, I don't get that. Convict the world of sin makes sense to me. Convict the world of righteousness. What in the world does that mean? I mean, righteousness is a good thing. So, what is the Spirit of God doing here? And, and this could be interpret, interpreted a couple different ways depending on how you take that word righteousness. Is that true righteousness, godly righteousness, or is it false righteousness? And I'm, I'm convinced the best interpretation of this passage is that Jesus is using the word righteousness to refer to self-righteousness, pseudo-righteousness, the way that the word is used in Isaiah 64, 6. And John quotes from Isaiah quite a lot in this gospel. Isaiah 64, 6, we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. So obviously, righteous deeds that are like a polluted garment are not actually righteous deeds, although the people doing them think that they're righteous deeds. These are people who are establishing their own righteousness and yet All of their good works are filthy rags to God. They don't count for anything. And that would be consistent with what we've seen throughout John's gospel. What was it that drove the Jews to murder Jesus? It was their counterfeit righteousness. Go all the way back to John chapter 2 when Jesus goes into the temple and he drives out the money changers. They had polluted the dwelling place of God and perverted the right worship of God. In John 5, the first time we hear mentioned that they start to persecute Jesus and plot how they could murder him. Why was it? Because he had healed somebody on the Sabbath. Just imagine being brought to murderous rage because somebody did a good thing on the wrong day. That's false righteousness. They were zealous about the Sabbath and totally missed the purposes of God. Later in John 5, Jesus rebukes the religious scholars. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Diligent Bible readers, they study the scriptures diligently, and Jesus says, they bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
So all of their Bible reading is just an external show of false righteousness, and they refuse to actually hear what it says in pointing people to Jesus. Their hands and their lips, their external deeds, their false righteousness hid the wickedness of their hearts. I think that's summed up most clearly in John 12, 42 and 43. They loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They loved looking good to each other more than they loved the glory of God. Not all righteousness is righteousness. As Paul says in Romans 10.3, being ignorant of the righteousness of God, that's one kind of righteousness, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, that's another kind. They did not submit to God's righteousness. So there's God's righteousness And there's human effort, self-reliance to establish your own righteousness before God. And even though we may not be surrounded by Jewish legalism today, where we live, self-righteousness is still prevalent among both the religious and the non-religious all around us. This is just a human thing. All humans seek to establish their own righteousness apart from God. There's always some system of justification by which you attempt to show to others that you're good, that you're virtuous, that you're, you're moral. People use the, the phrase now in the corporate world of virtue signaling through advertising and branding. Companies are just climbing over each other to show how good they are, how virtuous they are. If you eat this, you can feel good about yourself. You don't have to eat with guilt, I heard somebody say recently. If you buy the stuff at our store, you can eat without guilt. Guilt? I just give thanks to God and eat without guilt all the time through Jesus. But evidently, you're supposed to feel guilty if you eat things that were sourced in the wrong way, produced in the wrong way, packaged in the wrong way, with the wrong packaging. If you wear these brands, you you don't have to feel guilt. But if you wear these, shame on you. It's it's all self-righteousness, and humans just do this. We try to signal to everybody else how good we are. What Jesus is promising is that when the Spirit came, He would convict the world that all of that is as empty as the fig leaves that Adam and Eve used to cover themselves. That's self-reliant, self-righteousness. Adam and Eve hid from God. They covered themselves with fig leaves. God came and he provided skins from an animal. Blood had to be shed. God has provided righteousness in Jesus. All of our attempts are empty and broken. Listen to Tim Keller in The Prodigal God. Quote him at length here. He says, we must repent of the things we have done wrong, but to truly become Christians, we must also repent of the reasons we ever did anything right. Pharisees only repent of their sins, but Christians repent for the very roots of their righteousness too, that is self-righteousness. We must learn how to repent of the sin under all our other sins and under all our righteousness, the sin of seeking to be our own Savior and Lord. That's at the heart of self-righteousness. I don't need Jesus. I can be good enough on my own. And if, if that's true, you don't need a Savior to die for you. You don't need a Savior to live for you. We must admit, Keller says, that we've put our ultimate hope and trust in things other than God and that in both our wrongdoing and our rightdoing, we have been seeking to get around God or get control of God in order to get hold of those things. You get how that works? If I do all the right things in my own strength, then then God owes me something. That's how self-righteousness is a way of trying to get control of God. 
God, I did all those things. Now you owe me an easy life, comfort, this or that desire or dream that I've held on to. It's only when you see the desire to be your own Savior and Lord lying beneath both your sins and your moral goodness that you are on the verge of understanding the gospel and becoming a Christian indeed. When you realize that the antidote to being bad is not just being good, you are on the brink. And that's what the Spirit will do. Open the eyes of people living in their sin to see becoming a Christian doesn't mean going from being a bad person to being a good person. It means going from relying on yourself to relying wholly and exclusively on Jesus. He is our righteousness. There is no other hope. What a promise. And the Spirit will convict the world concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And I don't think that means the Spirit will convince the world there's going to be a judgment. Again, I, I think this means the Spirit is going to convict people in sin, in darkness, apart from Jesus, that their judgments, that is, their thoughts, their opinions, their convictions and beliefs are wrong. Again, this is a continuation of the very ministry of Jesus. John 7, 24, Jesus rebukes people saying, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So there's right judgment and there's wrong judgment an unpopular idea in our postmodern age that your opinions could actually be wrong. But it's true. There's truth and there's falsehood. And Jesus says, don't judge by appearances. Or in John 8, 15, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. So judging falsely, judging according to the flesh, judging by appearances, the Jews came to the conclusion that Jesus was a liar, John 8, 13, that he had a demon, John 8, 48, that he was not from God, John 9, 16, and that he was a sinner, John 9, 24, and they were wrong. And being wrong about Jesus is not just an innocent ignorance. It's a sinful stubbornness. Being wrong about Jesus has consequences. It's not just one area of life over here. If you're off there, that's so foundational that everything else you build, all of your other convictions, all of your other beliefs will be off if you're wrong about Jesus. Sin affects your ability to think and reason rightly. Sin makes you stupid. Have you ever seen somebody fall into sin? You just think, what, what are you doing? Throwing away your life, throwing away your marriage and your kids. What, sin makes people stupid. We call that the noetic effects of sin from the Greek word nous, which means mind. Sin affects your mind, your reasoning, your judgment. And here's the good news. Jesus sent his spirit to graciously change the hearts and minds of unbelievers who were dead wrong. And the need for that, he says, is urgent. The Spirit convicts the world of its judgment precisely because, Jesus says, the ruler of this world is judged. Literally in the Hebrew, the, the ruler of this world has been judged. It's happened. In Jesus' death and resurrection, the ruler of this world was judged. And those who are wrong about Jesus, therefore, are in a disastrous position and it's urgent. John 3, 36, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God's wrath is on those who are wrong about Jesus, and the fact that Jesus has already thrown down the devil guarantees God's destruction is not merely an idle threat. 
And so it's crucial that the Spirit of God operate in the world to convict people and convince people of their wrong judgments. Do you see how that's beneficial to you? The Spirit of God will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And all of that fulfills Jesus' promise just a little bit before this in John 15, 26 and 27. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me and you also will bear witness. So when we talk about living on mission, talking about Jesus, we never do that alone. We always do that empowered by the Spirit of Jesus. He's bearing witness in and through our bearing witness. Here's what's so awesome about that. We already have 2,000 years of history to prove to us the Spirit of God has been doing exactly what Jesus said he would do. I mean, just, just look back. I know there's this tendency to look at our narrow sliver and people think it's just getting worse and the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Just zoom out and look at 2,000 years since Jesus came, since Pentecost, and he poured out his Spirit on the church. Has the gospel of Jesus gone forth triumphantly or been pushed back? It's gone forth. Are there more or less disciples of Jesus today than there were 2,000 years ago? Not just like a few more, millions more. Has the gospel spread geographically or did it shrink after Jesus' time? I mean, there are churches on every continent. I don't know about Antarctica, but I'm sure somebody who's gone there has gone there and worshipped Jesus and his glory on display there. Listen to D.A. Carson. Before the triumphant inbreaking of God's saving reign, before the inauguration of the new covenant, millions... Millions of human beings ignored the claims of the true God. Pentecost transformed that limitation, and since then, millions have been brought to happy submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and to growing obedience by the power of the Spirit. How does that happen? Jesus said it would, because the Spirit of God is present, and that's an advantage for the church. What an advantage. The Spirit of God graciously, graciously convicting. I mean, do, do you see Jesus as glorious today? Are you aware of your sin and your need for a Savior, and are you trusting in Jesus alone for your righteousness? And has, has, have your thoughts and beliefs about God changed to come into line with his word? Then the Spirit's doing what Jesus said he would do. And if you want to experience this benefit of Jesus, it, it just, it strikes me that this benefit, if you, if you think about like, oh, something's going to benefit my life, we, we think about technology that makes our lives easier and an app that speeds up a process. And th this is not that kind of benefit. This benefit is specifically for the mission of Jesus. The Spirit of God is for fulfilling the mission of Jesus. And so if you want to experience this advantage Jesus offers you, just talk about Jesus with the confidence that the Spirit of God will accompany that and do His work. So if you're a parent and you have kids, just talk about Jesus with your kids with the confidence. The Spirit of God, that's His job to open their eyes to see and understand. As you talk with your neighbor over the fence or across the street, or you talk with your coworker over lunch, or you talk with a friend or a family member who's far from God, talk about Jesus with the hope and the confidence that the Spirit of God will graciously convict people of their sin and their false righteousness and their wrong beliefs about Jesus. That's what he does. Second thing Jesus says in this text is that the advantage to you is that the Spirit of God will glorify Jesus. That's verses 12 through 15. 
Verse 14, Jesus says, he will glorify me. He will magnify me. He will make much of me. And that, too, is for your good. In order to benefit from that and experience that, you have to see how the Spirit of God magnifies Jesus, makes much of Jesus. I want to show you three ways quickly. The Spirit magnifies Jesus because Jesus is the one who makes the gift of the Spirit possible. Verse 7, if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Again, that's one of those statements of Jesus in this text that just kind of baffles us at first, like, why? Why can't Jesus and the Spirit both be present at the same time? Well, it's not that they can't both be present because there's some kind of spatial constraint or some kind of competition or incompatibility between them. Rather, Jesus is pointing us to a crucial eschatological reality. Last things, fulfillment of promises that were foretold by the prophets for ages and generations. Jesus is pointing to the fulfillment of all of that. John explained it back in Chapter 7, verse 39, as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So there's some pivotal connection between this eschatological, that is, end times fulfillment of the outpouring of the Spirit of God and the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus has to die and conquer the grave and ascend to the right hand of the Father and sit down on his throne for the Spirit of God to be poured out as the spirit of the risen Christ. It's not that the spirit didn't exist or wasn't active before this point. He did exist. He was active. Rather, the spirit was not present as the spirit of the risen and exalted Christ until Christ was risen and exalted. The spirit was not present as the spirit of the risen and exalted Christ until Christ was risen and exalted. Sinclair Ferguson says it like this, the spirit who was present and active at Christ's conception as the head of the new creation, conceived by the Spirit, by whom Jesus was anointed at baptism, who directed him throughout his temptations and empowered him in his miracles and energized him in his sacrifice and vindicated him in his resurrection, that Spirit who did all of that now indwells disciples in this specific identity This is the meaning of our Lord's words, otherwise impossible to comprehend. It is for your good that I'm going away. When you think about the presence of the Spirit of God in you, are you aware, like just mundane, day-to-day routine, are you aware that that Spirit in you is that Spirit who did all of that in Jesus? Same Spirit, same power, now present in you as the very Spirit who empowered Jesus for his life and ministry and death and resurrection. That makes it absolutely impossible to experience the Spirit, let alone even talk about Him without focusing on the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus is glorified by the ministry of the Spirit because the Spirit is poured out as a result of Jesus' sin-atoning, wrath-absorbing, death-conquering work. Without that, there would be no life-giving ministry of the Spirit. That glorifies Jesus. Jesus is also glorified by the Spirit because Jesus is the one who gives the Spirit. He says, verse 7, if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. So that makes Jesus' death and resurrection the decisive factor. Then he says, but if I go, I will send him to you. I will send him. I will give him. That makes Jesus the unmistakable benefactor, the giver of the gift. And the giver always gets the glory. You can't give what you don't have. You could have a generous heart, 
and nothing to give. You can only give what you have. So who can give the Spirit of God except God himself? So when Jesus said, I will send the Spirit, that is a claim to be God. That would be completely blasphemous for anyone else to offer to do, to imagine that they could do. You can only give what you have. Jesus can give the Spirit because it's his Spirit. He's God. It's the Spirit of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. No one knows the mind of a person except their spirit. The Spirit of God knows the mind of God, and we have been given the Spirit of God by Jesus. And he's glorified as the giver of the Spirit. Jesus is also glorified by the Spirit. This is the specific point Jesus makes in our text. Jesus is the one whose works and words the Spirit applies. Everything the Spirit comes to do glorifies Jesus because he is simply applying the works and the words of Jesus to you. Look at verses 13 and 14. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The work of the Spirit is to glorify Jesus, verse 14. He does that by taking what belongs to the Father and the Son and proclaiming that to you, declaring it, announcing it, making it known to you. So in redemption, the Father sent the Son. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. The Father sent the Son. What did the Son do? He perfectly obeyed the Father, trusted the Father in every way, lived a righteous life, empowered by the Spirit, laid down his life willingly as the sufficient sacrifice for your sins. It was the Son's job to die for sinners. And the Spirit, who empowered Jesus in his life and ministry, now comes to apply that work of Jesus. Jesus accomplished redemption. The Spirit applies it to you. There's no salvation. The the good news of the gospel, what Jesus did is only good to you if you benefit from it. And the only way for anybody to benefit from it is for the Spirit of God to come and unpack that, unflesh it, press the implications of it into your life so that you see this isn't just an event that happened in history that's disconnected from my life, but this has ramifications for everything, what I think and how I feel and how I live. The Spirit of God is the one who unpacks that and applies it to you. And the primary Fulfillment, like we saw back in chapter 14, the primary fulfillment of this promise is the very fact that the the apostles of Jesus wrote down and recorded an accurate, reliable, trustworthy, authoritative record of Jesus' life and an explanation of what it meant for us, what we call the New Testament. We have that because this promise, that's the first meaning of this promise to those disciples right there. The Spirit of God would lead them into all truth. Declare to them the things that are to come, meaning all of the implications that would come out of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what Jesus meant when he said the Spirit would guide you into truth, declare the things that are to come. Jesus is the truth. The Spirit of God leads disciples of Jesus into Jesus, deeper and deeper into Jesus. There's no other truth to be led into. This promise does not mean that the Spirit will function like an internal GPS for individual Christians, giving you turn-by-turn navigation through life put this shirt on so that you get the job at the interview today and move your family there now. And the Spirit doesn't give us turn-by-turn navigation. Yes, the Spirit leads us, oftentimes in ways we don't really recognize until we look back, but the Spirit of God leading you into the truth of Jesus is not a promise of clairvoyance, like you will know the future. It's not a magic eight ball. 
He leads you into the truth of the gospel and all of its implications for life through his word. That's how he works. So how do you enjoy this benefit of the spirit leading you into the truth of Jesus? You don't start by asking, well, do I feel like I have the spirit today? You don't start with a subjective feeling. Your feelings are going to be all over the place as you navigate through life. You start with the word. You simply read the word and you read it with one primary aim in mind, to know Jesus, to know Jesus. So learn as you read the word how to recognize shadows and types that point ahead to Jesus in the Old Testament, how the sacrifices point us to Jesus the once-for-all sacrifice, how the temple points us to Jesus, the place where we meet with God, how the law points us to Jesus, the one who fulfilled all the law's demands and bore the curse for all of us who failed to keep the law. Learn how to read the New Testament in such a way that you see that behind all of the commands lies the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The gospel is the foundation. The gospel is the motivation for everything. That's why we talk so much about being gospel-centered. We want to see Jesus, his person, his work at the core of everything else we do. It's why in Emmaus Road Kids, as they go through the Old Testament, they're always teaching, where is Jesus in the Old Testament? As they go through the New Testament, they're always teaching, where is the gospel here in this text? How does, how, why do we need more than just our own effort? Why do we need Jesus to die in order for this to happen in our lives? the work of the Spirit to lead us deeper and deeper into Jesus. So as you read the Word, believe it. No matter how you feel, just believe it, trust it, obey it, delight in Jesus regardless of how you feel, and you will experience the Spirit of God working in you. So as you live by faith, here we are in this age. Jesus came. He is coming again. And in the meantime, we wait and we walk by faith, we set our eyes on things, not, not the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. So as you live by faith today, this week, how aware are you? Like consciously aware. Aware of, thankful for, praying for, relying on this reality. That Jesus is right now not absent he is sitting on his throne. He is bringing all of his enemies into subjection under his feet. And he is administering his kingdom on earth through his spirit whom he's poured out on the church. And that spirit is in you to empower you for life, for witness, for obedience this week. The spirit that helped Jesus through the desert. The spirit that empowered Jesus in his miracles, the spirit that vindicated him in his resurrection is in you. Are you experiencing the spirit of God deepening your delight in and your desire for Jesus? Are you depending on the spirit to work through your just fumbling conversations about Jesus to open the eyes of those who are far from God? And are you hoping, setting all of your hope in this, that Jesus knows what's best? For his church in this age, and he has supplied all that we need, and we are not lacking anything. That's what Jesus promises you in John 16. Let's pray.
Jesus, as we set our eyes on you, we do that with the awareness that that's the work of your spirit. It's because your spirit is at work in us that we see you, that we trust you, that we love you. And in our weakness and our unbelief and our stumbling, we're just so profoundly aware of how desperately we need the help of the Spirit. Thank you that you have supplied exactly what your church needs. You haven't left us. You're not absent. You're present through your Spirit. And we just don't grasp the fullness of what that means yet but we want to more and more. We want to live with a more conscious awareness of our need for the Spirit and a a more conscious enjoyment of the benefits and blessings of your Spirit. So help us, empower us, fill us, that we might walk in your Spirit, bearing the fruit of your Spirit who leads us deeper and deeper into the glories of Calvary, for your honor, for your praise, for the salvation of this world, this city full of people we love, and for our eternal good, now and forever. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.